Good morning to all of you all and to all those in Zoom. And uh, I'm excited to bring to you God's word today because uh, Revelation 4 to 5 is such a powerful text of what we will get to do one day. So let me pray for us and we'll dive straight into God's word. Oh Lord God, may the words of my mouth and thoughts and meditations of our hearts, Lord, may they all be pleasing to your sight. May they all bring you honor and glory. We pray this through our son's name. Amen. Now, uh, in about 2013, a dream lifter, that is a modified 747, that was used as a cargo plane landed at an airport in Wichita, Kansas, and was stuck there for several days. You see, the length of the airport was just only 6,000 feet, two-thirds of the 9,000 feet that it really required to take off. And so they had a little bit of a problem, and the problem arose because the pilot had landed at the wrong airport. It had instead landed at a small municipal or executive airport that was 10 miles away from its intended destination here. You know, as it turned out, the pilot here did not cross-check the navigation before doing a manual landing at the wrong airport here. Then on Twitter, this embarrassing incident prompted a few humorous tweets here. And so one of these pilots here, Karen Pettit here, she tweeted out this picture of herself standing in front of a Dreamlifter and said, women pilots don't land at the wrong airport. We ask for directions here. Now, in our sermon series, You Are Here, we have really been talking about trying to find ourselves, examining ourselves in light of where Jesus says we are spiritually. Now, while the introspection is helpful, we also need to remind ourselves of where we are going. We need to remind ourselves of our final destination. Instead of you are here, it will be you will be here. And so that in today's passage here in Revelation 4 to 5, it tells us what our final destination is. And the place that we should be and that we will be one day is that we will be around the throne of God, worshipping Him with all our creation. And if that is our destiny, if that is our destiny to be around the throne of God, worshipping Him, then let us make worship a priority. And so, so today's text tells us in Revelation 4 to 5, tells us to let us worship God, for He alone is worthy of worship. Let us worship God, for He alone is worthy of worship here. Now, within the context of the flow of Revelation, you know, we saw the first vision of the risen Christ, and this led to the seven letters in the Revelation 2 to 3, and now we get another vision of Christ, all right? We get another vision. John gets another vision here in Revelation 4 to 5, and Revelation 4 to 5 gives us two reasons, two reasons why Jesus and why God alone is worthy of worship. Two reasons here. The first reason is given in chapter 4, and that because God is the transcendent God who creates. The second reason is given in chapter 5, because He is the Lamb of God 
who redeems. So we have two reasons here. First reason in chapter 4 is he is the God who creates. Second reason in chapter 5 is that he is the Lamb of God who redeems. Now, just as a caveat here, you know, I can't explain all the symbolism in these two chapters. I made a promise to my wife, Karen, who is downstairs looking after the kids, you know, that I'll finish within the allocated 35 minutes. So I'm going to be highly selective as we kind of move through these two chapters, all right? Now, as we get to this, uh, these two chapters here, worship is not a spectator sport. Not a spectator sport. It's a participatory event. So what I'm going to have you all do is for you all to participate in it and to envision yourself as part of the choir that is before the throne of God. Now, as you come to see chapter 4 and 5, there are several participants or several parts of the choir. First, we get the four living creatures, four living creatures. And that role or that section here will be the four living creatures. So when we get to the hymn, all right, where the four living creatures sing the hymn, I want you all to stand up and then to read the hymn. All right, the four living creatures are there because you guys are kind of the smallest group there, you know. Now we get the 24 elders. So maybe you have that side, all right. This side here is the 24 elders so that when it's, it comes up to say it's the 24 elders that are saying the hymn, you all stand up and read the hymn. Now, after that, you know, we have the millions of angels, all right? So this group here will be the millions of angels, so that when you get to the section of million angels, you guys stand up, and this side here will be the rest of creation, including those on Zoom, all right? Those on Zoom here, you all will be the rest of creation, so that when it comes to your turn, you all stand up and read the hymn. All right, so everybody know their parts, okay? The four living creatures, 24 elders, the millions of angels, and then everybody else, including those on Zoom here. All right, so then let's begin with the first reason here. And that first reason is because he is a transcendent God who creates. And so let's read it here. And in chapter 4, you find that it's kind of broken down to three parts. There's a scene, and then there are two hymns, and the two hymns here interpret and summarize the the scene. And you also see the same thing happening in chapter 4. There'll be a scene, and then there'll be two hymns, but then it'll add one more final hymn right at the end, the grand coda, the grand finale of it all. So let's take a look at the first one here, the scene here. Now, there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on the throne there, had the appearance of jasper and a cornelian stone. Then they had a rainbow there, and the rainbow there... Uh, had the appearance of an emerald, it surrounded the throne, and around the throne here were 24 thrones, and on the 24 thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. And then it continues here that there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder that came from the throne. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. And the four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in the back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle here. Now, from this scene here, I'm just going to draw various aspects here 
that shows God's sovereignty and God's transcendence. And one of the things that you can take note of here is the language of throne. Throne appears so often. In fact, throne appears 17 times in Revelation 4 to 5. Half of all the occurrences of throne in Revelation occur in these two chapters here. Now, the throne of God will obviously then contrast with the throne of Satan, which is mentioned in chapter 12. And by implication, it will also then contrast with the throne of Caesar and the throne in terms of the beast here. But Revelation 4 to 5 then tells us that in comparison to all the other thrones, our God is the God of gods here. Our God is the most important one because His throne is the throne that ultimately matters. His throne is the throne that ultimately matters. And you also see this language here in terms of around the throne or surrounded the throne, and it occurs three times here. And this language of around the throne shows us that the throne of God is at the very center, it is at the very nexus of the universe, at the very pivot of power in the universe. Just as we think that the White House is the political center of the United States, the throne of God is a political and spiritual center of the universe in the sense that, you know, it is a place where events of the universe are decided. So we get the language of the throne of God. Then we get the language in terms of these flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now, when you see this language of lightning here, we shouldn't think of your, it as something as innocuous as this plasma globe, which kind of gives you a little tickle when you kind of touch it. But rather, you should envision it as this, all right, where three lightning striking simultaneously in the three tallest buildings of Chicago here. Now, before this nuclear power, powers of nature were the greatest manifestation of power that was ever unleashed before. And so we get here again this sense of God's power, His transcendence, and His sovereignty. And the next thing that we see here is that we see a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Sea is always seen as a metaphor of evil in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament. So when it says that it's a sea like glass, flat, smooth, it means that the powers of evil have been subjugated by God. The chaos of evil have been leveled, have been made smooth, have been subjugated by God itself. And in the end of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, John tells us that there is no more sea. No more sea. So for those of you who like surfing, wind sailing, kayaking, sorry, all right, no more water spots for y'all. But literally, no, or rather metaphorically, the notion of there not being any sea is to tell us that even, not only has evil been subjugated, it has been eradicated, eviscerated, removed in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the next thing that we see here is that we see this retinue, 24 elders here and the four living creatures here. Now, the 24 elders, now who are the 24 elders? You're all right. The 24 elders is, your math is chaff plus chaff, right? It goes to 24. So 24 elders here represents the 12 tribes of Israel 
and the twelve apostles, and therefore indicating that all the redeemed from the old covenant to the new covenant, they are all going to be standing before the throne of God. And then we have the four living creatures here, we all, four living creatures. Now the four living creatures recalls Ezekiel 1. And the four living creatures is basically seen to represent all of animate creation. So that you have the lion, which is the most noble of creation. You have the ox, which is the strongest of all creation. You have man itself, who is the wisest of all creation. And eagles here as the swiftest of all creation. So it's all saying that all of animate creation will be represented there, worshipping God. So those are the four living creatures. Now, what is the significance of all this event here? All of the elements here show God's sovereignty. It shows God's transcendence. That if you want to get to God, you have to get past the 24 elders, the four living creatures. You have to cross the glassy sea. You have to withstand the lightnings, the rumblings, and the peals of thunder. You have to withstand the brilliance of the rainbow itself. And so it really gives you a picture of God's sovereignty, God's transcendence. But what is the response to this scene? What is the response to this scene? And it is worship. And so then we get to our first hymn here. You know that? The hymn. So let's see here. Day and night, they never stop saying. Who is the they? The four living creatures. All right, the they. It's the four living creatures. So who are the four living creatures? You all stand up. And let's read together, all right? So, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. Y'all can be seated, all right? Now, this hymn here tells us what the character of God is, that God is totally other. It uses this formula, holy, holy, holy. This threefold formula is the strongest form of the superlative in Hebrew. And you know that there's only one other occurrence where it occurs, right? Where else did, does it occur in the Old Testament? Isaiah 6. Again, at the throne room scene. All right, holy, holy, holy here. You know, this is the only adjective of God that is used in this threefold pattern. The only adjective of God. In our sentimental age, we want to think that the defining character of God is love. But the Bible never tells us and never speaks of God as loving, loving, loving. No, it never does that. Rather, it is holy, 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 which suggests then that the defining, the defining character of God is His holiness. Namely, that he is totally other. He is wholly other, and that he is wholly separate from all of creation, from all the created order. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who existed in the past, present, and will continue to exist in the future. So this is the first hymn here, all right? Thank you for the four living creatures. And now we get to the next hymn here, so that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor here uh, to, to the one seated on the throne, 
the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crown before the throne and say, now who else, who else, who are the they now? The 24 elders, right? All right. So the 24 elders, what are the 24 elders? Come on up, stand up and read. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. All right, thank you. So it begins here, you know, saying that you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Consequently, the 24 elders, they throw down their crowns before the throne of God. The crowns represent authority, but they recognize that the authority is derivative. The authority is derived from the authority of God. And so they willingly throw down their authority before the throne of God and relinquish their honor and their authority before God here. Now, why is God worthy of worship? It says here, because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. God is worthy of worship because he created all things. He created galaxies, the stars, the moons. He created you. He created me. And not only that, God is worthy of worship because he sustains the whole created world order here. Notice here, and by your will, they exist. They exist here. And it's all picture here that even the electrons in the atoms of our universe here, they, they continue to spin around the nucleus because God sustains the physical laws of the universe. So all of us here, God is worthy of worship because He creates. He creates here. Now this chapter here tells us that God is worthy of worship because He is the transcendent and the sovereign God who creates. God alone must be the one we worship because if we do not worship Him, we will worship something else. If we do not worship Him, we will worship something else because we were all created for worship. All of us were created in the image of God with a desire to commune with God and to worship Him. But ever since the fall, our worship compass has been disoriented so that we do not worship the Creator but the creature. So therefore, we need to make it a priority. We need to make it a priority to worship God because He is the one who created us. Now, let's come on to the next reason here in that why God alone is worthy of worship and that He is the Lamb of God who redeems here. He is the Lamb of God who redeems. Again, you get the same thing here of this there being a scene. You get two hymns that interpret the scene, but we end with one hallelujah chorus right at the end. All right? So that's the final hymn. Let's take a look then at the scene here. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals here. Notice it is a double-sided scroll. 
And on this scroll here, it contains God's final plan for judgment and redemption of the entire cosmos. And it's sealed with seven seals, indicating here that it is securely sealed and that it cannot be opened except by the right person. So there's this sealed here, right? But yet, you know, we continue reading here, and we read here, and it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seal? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll even to look at it. No one in heaven, no angel is able to do it. No one on earth, no human is able to do it. No one under the earth, no spirit is able to open the scroll here. And so John is weeping here. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, even to look in it here. Now, John here is bawling. He's crying here. Why is he crying? Not because he's a nosy parker and wants to know what's in the scroll. No, because the significance of opening the scroll is not just only to look into the contents of the scroll, but also to execute the contents of the scroll. It's to bring about the action within the scroll here. So John weeps here because God's plan of judgment against evil, God's plan of redemption and restoration and blessing, not just for humanity, but for all of creation, it will not be carried out to its completion. So John weeps here because the new heavens and the new earth will never come into fruition. And this section here tells us that no one was able to open the scroll. But, 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 then one of the elders said to me here, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. The lion here represents the Messiah, the kingly Messiah from the tribe of David, from the lion of David and Judah. But this lion is then transformed into a lamb. Look, it goes on to say, verse 6, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb, a slaughtered lamb, the language of slaughter again, recalling the Passover, recalling again Isaiah 53, and how the lamb was slaughtered for the sins of the world. But even though the lamb was slaughtered, what does it say? It says that it is standing. It is alive. It has been resurrected. And where is it standing? It is standing in the midst of the throne. Somehow, the lamb and God they are one. The Lamb and God are one. And so we get here the incipient beginnings of a Trinitarian theology here. And not only that here, you know, it then goes on to say that this Lamb, this slaughtered Lamb, is now transformed into a ram. It is transformed into a conquering ram with seven horns, Horns represents power here, and seven represents completeness. So this lamb is now transformed into a conquering ram that has complete power, and with seven eyes indicating his complete omniscience over all events here. So we have here the lion, who is also the lamb, is now worthy to take the scroll and to execute all of God's plan of judgment and redemption here. And then get to the hymn, right? 
When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and they sang a new song. So what part of the choir do we have now? Four living creatures plus the 24 elders, right? It says here, so could you all stand? All right, and let's read it together, all right? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Thank you very much, y'all. Now, this third hymn here tells us that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll. He is worthy to receive the sovereign authority over the cosmos, over the entire universe. Now, why is he worthy here? It says here, because you were slaughtered, you were killed for the sins of the world. And not only that, because you... People, what kind of people? People here from every tribe and language and people and nation, meaning that God did not only purchase the Jews, but also purchased the Gentiles, and that in the final throne scene, we'll see people of every color, people of every language, people of every nation coming before the throne and worshiping God. And then it goes on to say, the Lamb is also worthy because you made them a kingdom and priest to a God here. Recalling the language of Exodus 19.6 here, where the Lamb here has redeemed us so that we might rule with Him, so that we might serve Him as priests, so that we might mediate God's blessings to the world. All right? So this is the purpose in terms of why God has redeemed them here. And so because of Christ's atoning sacrifice, which conquered the power of Satan and death, Christ has redeemed humanity for God. And then we go on to the next hymn here. Then I look and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their numbers was countless thousands plus thousands plus thousands. They said with a loud voice. Now who are they? The angels and the elders and the living creatures. So y'all stand up. Right? And let's read this, say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Y'all be seated here. Notice here the Lamb is worthy of worship. Worthy is the Lamb, all right? And what is the Lamb worthy to receive? Let's take a look, all right? So we see here it's worthy to receive power, riches, Wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessings. How many items are there? Seven. Seven, again, a magical number. Completeness. Ultimately here, this lamb is worthy of all kinds of worship here. It's worthy to receive complete worship. Absolutely worthy to receive complete worship. So that what we have here, you know, that there is a symmetry here between the hymns of Revelation 4 to 5. 
you have in Revelation 4, you have two hymns to God. Revelation 5, you have two hymns to the Lamb here. And in Revelation 4, God is praised because He creates, and now God is, the Lamb is praised because He redeems here. The Lamb is worthy because He redeemed. God is to be worshipped because He creates, and God is to be worshipped because He is the Lamb who redeems. But God does not just redeem humanity. He also redeems all of creation. You all know that from Romans 8, Paul says that all creation is groaning until the full redemption of humanity itself. And so then here, as God's children are redeemed, so also all of creation is also redeemed. So that then we come here to the final hymn. All right, we come here to the final hymn. And it says here, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say. So who are we? Who, who has to stand up? You all have to stand up, right? Stand up. But then it's also every creature in heaven. So that means, means it's the four living creatures. It must mean it's the 24 elders and angels. You all live in heaven, right? All right. So that what we have here, you know, in this whole scene here, and let's read it. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever here. Take a seat, please, here. So the final hymn here is the culmination of all the previous hymns. Altogether, there are five hymns in Revelation 4 to 5. The first two hymns are directed here, you know that, to, to God. The hymn three and four are directed to the Lamb, and that ultimately you have everybody directed to the Lamb and God. Let me just show you here how there is this crescendo. There is this crescendo here, like a final hallelujah chorus, all right? And like this, you know, how you want to have a little build-up in a piece of work. You get the first, you get the four living creatures singing praise to God, and then you get the 24 elders here also singing praise to God. Then you get the four living creatures and the 24 elders praising the Lamb. And then you get the four living creatures, 24 elders, and the millions of angels praising the Lamb. And then you get everybody praising both God and the Lamb. All right? So that what we have here then, you know, everybody joining in the Hallelujah Chorus. And this scene then anticipates, looks forward to the universal praise that is offered to God, both by His willing subjects and also by His opponents at the end, at the consummation and the culmination of all things. I wonder, can you all imagine the scene? Can you all imagine the scene? You know, imagine that you are Wrigley Fields after the Cubs won the World Series. And the fans started singing, Go Cubs, Go. You know, you get the goosebumps, right? And then some diehard fans, they start crying, you know that. Because, crying not because of grief, but crying because of the sheer joy, excitement, and the volume of the sound. How many people can Wrigley Field hold? 
41,000 people. 41,000 people. Now imagine the whole world and the entire cosmos here singing praise to a God. And this is a grand picture of worship that a God will receive. How many years did the cops wait for that moment? How many? 108 years. All right, 108 years. But for some of the saints who have asked God, how long, O Lord, before you avenge us? They have waited at least several thousand years. And then when they finally see the new heavens and the new earth ushered in, and when that happens, I can tell you there will be so much joy that there will not be a single dry eye at all. And that is a scene. And then when we take a look at that, you know, here, the passage here, Revelation 4 to 5, tells us that only God is to be worshipped. For he alone is worthy of worship. Why? Because he created us and he redeemed us here. And in light of our sermon series, You Are Here, I would say that we need to make worship a priority. We need to make worship a priority in order to remind ourselves of our final destination, of where we are headed. But let me ask you, how do we do this? How can we make worship a priority? Let me make two suggestions, all right? First suggestion here, make Sunday worship here a priority in your schedule. Make Sunday worship a priority in your schedule. It is a chance to remind ourselves that God has called us to be separate from the world, that God has called us out of this world in order to be a people that is holy to him, that belongs to him. And so this Sunday worship service is like a practice session in anticipation of the final hallelujah that we will get to sing at the end. And as we gather together as a people of God to sing praise to Him, our corporate worship reminds us of our true identity and our final destiny because that is where we are meant to be, to be around the throne of God, worshiping Him. We see that even at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 22, verse 5, the throne of God and the Lamb will be smack in the city, the new earth here, right, the new Jerusalem, and his servants will what? Will worship him. His servants will worship him here. The final destination of our spiritual journey is to be around the throne of God, worshiping him. And while we are still on earth, while we are still on a spiritual journey here, when we come together to worship, our earthly worship participates in the heavenly worship. And as we participate in our heavenly worship here, when we worship God, we ascend into heaven and we worship with the four living creatures, we worship with the 24 elders, we worship with the millions of angels. And we see this heavenly worship not with our physical eyes, but with our eyes of faith here. And it's to this heavenly city, to this heavenly Zion here, that we meet with God in our worship. Worship is the means. Worship is the means whereby we remind ourselves that we are not trapped within the four walls of this physical world. 
it reminds ourselves that we are not trapped within the four walls of this physical world here, but that our true home is to be around the throne of God, worshipping Him. Do you remember this scene here from the movie Shawshank Redemption? Do you remember that movie? Shawshank is a prison, and then within this prison itself, there's one uh, prisoner, Andy Dufresne, and he breaks into the PA, the public address room, he rips up an Italian opera, and he starts playing the Italian opera. Then as the music is being wafted throughout the entire prison, all the prisoners are just standing there stunned. And it is as though here, you know, that the music lifts them up. It gives them a taste and a feel of the outside world and a taste of freedom. And it goes on to say in the movie, it was as if a bird had flown into their cage. And the walls that surrounded them dissolved away. And for the briefest moment, every man at Shawshank, at the prison, felt free. And so here, when we worship God here on this earth, on this earth, we close our eyes and remind ourselves that even though there are these oppressive walls of evil, destruction, death, heartache, and pain, that when we worship God, we are reminded that this present evil age is not a home, but that our true destiny is in heaven, worshipping the Almighty God on His throne with the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the millions of angels here. All right? So make Sunday worship a priority. And as you make Sunday worship a priority, you know, as you do that here, I think that we must also reframe, reframe all of our life as an opportunity to worship God. Reframe all of your life as an opportunity to worship God. Don't think of your life as though you are waiting at the airport terminal, waiting for your flight to heaven, and all you can do is just wait. No, because the Apostle Paul, what does he tell us here in Romans 12? I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship here. You see, our bodies are to be a living sacrifice that is to be set apart and pleasing to God. So envision all of your life, all of your life as a singular act of worship to God in the sense that the impetus, the motivation of everything that you do is to glorify God. So therefore, you know, even if you're working at McDonald's or at Jewel's here, consider your work there as a sacrifice pleasing to God. The sense here that you're ultimately flipping burgers, you're bagging groceries, not so much for your salary, but that you're doing it so as to seek to honor the Lord and to honor His command to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in this world of possibility that I'm asking you to envision, I want you also to envision your office, cubicle, your classroom, your car here. I want you to envision all of that as a sacred place, as a worship sanctuary. 
so that as you're clearing out the email in your box, as you discuss business plans with your colleagues, and as you meet with clients, as you write term papers, do it all as a worshiper. Do it all as a worshiper. Tell God this, I offer these business meetings, these conversations, these term papers, I offer them all as a sacrifice to you. May I honor you in everything that I do. May it be a pleasing sacrifice to you. Our God here is worthy of worship because he is the one. He is the one who creates. He is also the one who redeems us. So in light of that, we should make worship a priority for it reminds us of our final destiny and it reminds us what we were created for. And what were we created for? To enjoy God and to glorify him forever. Therefore, let us then worship God, for he alone is worthy of worship. Let me pray for us. But Lord God, I just thank you for these two chapters that are so powerful in orientating us to where we will finally be and where we should be, that we are to be at your throne, falling down before you, worshiping you. And as we wait, Lord, for that to be a true reality, help us now to participate in that, becoming to make worship a priority every Sunday and also in considering all of our life as a singular act of worship to you. We pray this through your son's name. Amen.